Hey everybody, John Pasquina here. And first I want to apologize because it's been a long time since I had a chance to sit down and just record a podcast. It's something that I'm really interested in that I've been meaning to do more of. But 2017 has been kind of a rebuilding year for me, so thank you very much to everyone who has been tolerating that. <laughs> I know that my content used to be a lot, it used to come out a lot more often and it used to be of a higher production value. And it will be that again, hopefully pretty soon, actually. It's just that this has been a rough time for me, kind of. And I'll, I'll talk about that more later. I, I always get frustrated when people with podcasts lead by telling silly, stupid stories or whatever, and then they make you wait before they get into the good content. I'm going to do exactly the opposite of that. I want to lead with the really good, interesting stuff. So welcome to my new podcast. It's called Seeing Through the Media. And I wanted to sharpen my focus because my last podcast was called The Second Renaissance Thoughtcast. And at that time, it was more of like a general interest thing. But now I want to I wanna focus down specifically for the most part on understanding the media and understanding how to read more deeply what you see in the press or how to, how to read between the lines of the things that they talk about on TV so that you can build a more robust perspective on the world. And that is, that is my purpose. I will be providing my opinion, of course, but um, that's not necessarily because I'm trying to make other people agree with me, although that's always kind of fun and satisfying in a way. What I want is to explain the techniques that I use to come to my conclusions and, uh, and try and convince other people that this is how you should handle things, because I read the mainstream media like a detective. I don't trust anything. I'm skeptical of their narratives. And so let's talk about why. Because recently, several friends of mine from many different walks of life all approached me with kind of the same question, which essentially boiled down to what the hell is happening in American politics right now? <laughs> and it is a good question, actually, <laughs> because the situation is highly complex. And I don't think that you can even comprehend what's going on if you don't have at least the basics of how politics and the media actually function. Now, I suspect that people who've been listening to me for a while or who have some experience with internet conspiracy theories, they probably at least know some of this, especially if you watch my documentary, Information Ghetto. But there, there's going to be a lot more. This isn't that. This isn't a rehash of that. What I want to do is answer that question by just giving you an overview of politics as usual and then explain what I think is happening right now. So the first thing that you have to understand is that individuals are unique. So if you want to market things to them, if you want to sell things to them, you have to abstract them out into market segments. And that's why political parties exist. <laughs> and that's why there's two of them. Democrats and Republicans their platforms are carefully engineered to appeal to certain kinds of people. Republicans are reaching, obviously, for right-wingers, traditionalists, conservatives. You know, in theory, they're pushing the Constitution, rugged individualism, things like that. But this is rarely seen in practice, of course. Democrats are left-wingers. They're free thinkers, in theory. They want to try to use state power to solve problems. And in general, they seek to collectivize problems, uh, collectivize resources, so that you have more fair and equitable outcomes. Although this, again, is rarely seen in practice. Because, of course, the state is not, that's not the function that it actually serves. 
The state isn't there to solve problems. The state is there to manage problems so that the people who work for the government and who orbit around the government can profit from it. And we'll talk about that in more detail in a second. But you have to understand that the Democratic Party serves a crucial purpose for the Republican Party and vice versa. They each serve as the common enemy for the other. And this is a propaganda technique. It's a form of group psychological manipulation. And if you want to learn more about that specifically, you can watch my documentary. But a common enemy is used to unite people behind the leadership. So maybe you only agree with 40% of what the Republican Party stands for. Well, you're stuck anyway. You have to vote for them because think about how much worse the Democrats are. You know, We have to vote for George Bush this time because, oh, we can't have Al Gore. Next time, we'll get a real conservative. And they face the same kind of thing on the other side, you know, just substitute any Clinton. And that is their game. That's how you get elections where candidates not only went to the same school, but they belong to the same secret society. Now, if you're new to this kind of stuff, or if you've been around a while and you're laboring under this misconception, I want you to understand, secret societies are not impressive or cool. When you think secret society, I don't want you to think of some kind of shadowy organization with tentacles everywhere, although sometimes they can be like that. When you hear secret societies, I want you to think frat house. <laughs> because if you actually study what happens at the, uh, at the, what is it called? I forget the name of their little thing, but the Skull and Bones Secret Society, which was what George Bush and John Kerry were both members of. That was sort of a, a little minor scandal back during that election. But if you study what actually goes on in places like that, it's really just a place where the spoiled children of wealthy aristocratic families, mostly in the Northeast, <laughs> they, they all send their kids to these same schools and then they start frat houses where they, they play with bones and things and then they think that that is somehow uh, profound. So anyway, the reason why we get candidates from the same frat house is because the two-party system is a marketing scheme. Have you noticed yet that the two parties have more or less the same agenda? George Bush expanded Medicaid and Obama expanded the war on terror. <laughs> Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, they all ran on peace platforms and then immediately implemented interventionist and adventurist foreign policies. And it seems like this is just steadily escalating until we get to probably World War III. At least I hope not. I hope we can stop that from happening. But when you see the rhetoric that's floating around out there about China and North Korea and Russia, um, you can see how war is a big part of what they're trying to accomplish. And again, we'll talk more about why in a second here. But both parties are controlled by the donor class. The donor class funds their campaigns and keeps them in office. The politicians essentially sell their offices. And I don't want you to take my word for that. That's a big thing to just throw out there. What I want you to do, if you don't believe me, or even if you do, there's two books that I want you to read by Peter Schweitzer, who is the author of Clinton Cash, which was a big thing during the election. But I don't want you to think that he's some kind of Republican one-trick pony or a Trump supporter who only ever says bad things about Democrats. For one thing, he does have, it's not a, it's not a book, it's a pamphlet, but it's called Bush Bucks. And it explains sort of the Republican side of the same kinds of shams and fraud that the Clintons were engaged in. Uh, and that's a good read, too. But the main books I'd like for you to check out are Extortion and Throw Them All Out. Those two books are about how politics really works. 
And just to give you a quick example, imagine that a bill is coming to the floor of Congress about widgets production. These are going to be new regulations in the production of widgets. Well, this is an opportunity on both sides to extort money from the donor class for the politicians, because the uh, the people who are going to vote against the bill will go to the people, the, the and when I say people, I mean people with money. I mean wealthy individuals, the heads of giant corporations, the people that the politicians can benefit from. They go to these people and they say, we got this big bill coming out and I'm going to vote against it, but I'm going to need your help. I need you to, I need money so that I can propagandize. I need money so that I can bring other politicians into the fold and we're going to try and defeat this bill for you. On the other side, they'll go to the people who support the bill and want it and they'll promise them the moon and the sun and the stars in exchange for campaign donations or, or for press or for favors or whatever it is that they're looking for. Because the influence in how regulations are written, the influence in who gets appointed where, influence in foreign policy decisions, uh, there's money to be made and power, hate to be made and power to be siphoned off on both sides of every issue. So what you see now then are things like WikiLeaks emails that prove that Barack Obama's cabinet was essentially dictated to him by Citibank. <laughs> Not just the names, but what positions they would occupy when they actually got into the government. And it's funny, I actually saw somebody try to defend this once because they were saying, well, there's always a revolving door between high corporate office and the government. You always see people moving back and forth between the highest echelons of political power and the highest levels of corporate power. And um, yeah, you do. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's a good thing. <laughs> yes, it's the status quo. <laughs> but you see, you see these Google executives meeting with Obama uh, hundreds of times, the Bush family's ties to oil money, and we'll talk a little bit specifically about Trump's cabinet here in a second. But that's real power. That's who really runs the show. The politicians are clowns. Their job is to distract you. Their job is to sell agendas. Their job is to play us off against each other. And the real agenda is the relentless growth of state power, the relentless growth of the surveillance state, the wars that never end. And those are financial decisions on the part of the people who stand to make money from, from these things. And this has been going on for a really long time, actually far too long. And the arrogance and incompetence of the power elite in the United States is absolutely staggering. They are constantly shilling for more war, constantly shilling for more power, and they have absolutely no empathy or sympathy for us here down in the field who are suffering from these decisions and bad things that are happening. So why is that? They feel safe because they own the media. 90% of the media in the United States is owned by six mega corporations. They are the gatekeepers of allowable public opinion. The corporations decide which experts get on TV, which candidates get press coverage, which facts get blown up into scandals, and which ones don't even make the paper. What the media does is trick you into thinking that a really loud and obnoxious debate between Republicans and Democrats is a real debate. And they do argue a lot. And there is a lot of passion and emotion in what they're arguing about. But what is easy to miss is that they're actually arguing over a very narrow range of opinion, a range of opinion that has clearly defined limits and that is easily distracted by inane bullshit. The rivalry between Democrats and Republicans is kind of like the rivalry between the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Cleveland Browns. 
the competition is real in the sense that they are both trying to win, but they're both franchises of a larger corporation, and that's the NFL. No matter who wins the game, the real winner is the NFL. And they will always win as long as you're watching and hollering and arguing and buying TV, uh, buying T-shirts and buying coffee mugs and jerseys and hats. That's the real game. The real game is the stuff that they can sell you and the stuff that they can get away with. And uh, the players themselves, the, they usually end up shaking hands and making friends by the end of the day. Uh, they have more in common with each other than they have with you. And they change teams when it's profitable for them. (laughs) And that's a perfect metaphor for politics as usual. And it's a real shit sandwich, to tell you the truth. I was pretty disappointed when I figured that out. But that's why you see debates over increasing or decreasing this or that program by a couple percentage points, or increasing or decreasing this or that tax by a couple percentage points, and you, you sometimes you sit there like, why is this such a furious debate? Bitter, angry, personal, childish, miserable debates all day, every day uh, over minuscule changes to institutions that are completely dysfunctional, broke, indebted, and largely failed at their stated goals. You think of it this way. The Federal Reserve was created to stabilize the value of the dollar. And today, the dollar is worth 3% of what it was when the Federal Reserve was created. So that's a fail, right? It's time for new ideas. We need new concepts, new innovations, because the way that our society is structured at the moment, the debt is just stacking up. They're pumping constantly more and more monopoly money into the economy through quantitative easing. Huge conglomerations of power, like the banking institutions that failed a while ago, or the, uh, the automobile companies. All of these institutions are suffering from essentially the same problems, the incompetence, the running out of money, running out of resources, and of course, don't forget the wars that never end, the expensive, bloody, destructive wars that are fought to protect the financial interests of the oligarchy. And just as a quick example, the uh, all this nonsense about Russia, there's a couple different motivations for it. One of them we'll get to in a second. The other is that Russia Russia and the United States are essentially fighting over an oil pipeline that they want to build through Syria. And this is why the United States has been involved in Syria. This is why elements of the political class uh, from both political parties and within the military have been shilling for more U.S. intervention in Syria because billions of dollars are on the line there. It's crucial to Russia's economy that they be able to get oil and natural gas and other resources that they sell to Europe, to Europe through the pipelines that are already established. And this, creating these new pipelines, new routes to get raw materials into Europe is a threat to Russia's economy. It's a threat to their power. And Russia is doing what they can to try and keep the United States from horning in on their sources of revenue, which they need to keep their economy moving so that they can feed their people. You know, Russia has an economy just like the United States. And just like we depend on our industry to keep people employed, Russia has the same problems. So the media, of course, is run by people who want to preserve the status quo because they profit from it. They have immense power because of the status quo. So if you want to understand what's happening in the world, you have to understand that in the news, in in cable news, in newspapers, in magazines, in blogs, 
you're viewing through a distorted lens. You're seeing what the establishment wants you to see and what the advertisers have deemed appropriate to be associated with their brand. <laughs> the advertising-based business model is one of the big problems that we have to deal with. It's one of the hurdles that we have to overcome. And as you've probably guessed, that's what my YouTube show and podcast are about. So what got me on this track at the moment is the media's coverage of Charlottesville. Now, I'm going to assume that my listeners are well-educated and well-read. I think that's fair. So I'm going to assume that you already know at least a little bit about what's going on, and you saw the hysterical condemnation of Donald Trump, and most of the people who were asking me about what the hell's going on in American politics, <laughs> it was because of this. It was because they were so confused by the media coverage of Charlottesville. And when I see these big feeding frenzies in the media, I always think it's pretty interesting. I think probably you've read the novel 1984, or at least you're aware of the general plot line and stuff. So do you remember the concept of three minutes hate? The tyrannical regime in 1984 has designated time set aside every day for citizens to stare at a picture of, um, I don't remember, it was like a rebel or a terrorist group or something. But the point is that it's a common enemy to rally the people around. And if you remember that in the novel, the rebels were actually controlled oppositions. So under ordinary circumstances, the Republicans are the common enemy for the Democrats and vice versa. They're both run by the same corporatocracy, more or less. And what the mainstream media seems to be trying to do, and has always been tried to do with Donald Trump, is turn him into everybody's common enemy. Not just the major media figures either, but the leadership of the Republican Party itself opposes its own elected president. It's pretty remarkable, actually. I've never seen anything quite like it. Under ordinary circumstances, you see political parties circle around each other and circle the wagons. You know, that's part of what they do is they hold the line. It's a group survival strategy. Um, so my read of these situations is that Donald Trump genuinely represents a threat to the established order. The lying, conniving, thieving, warmongering established order. <laughs> now notice that that's different than me saying that Donald Trump is a great man or a great leader or my first choice to be president of the United States. I mean, there are things that I like about Donald Trump. I was happy to vote for him under the circumstances, but I'm sure that he has his own agenda. Or another possibility is that he represents a different wing of the establishment that has some different um, goals and, and some operational disagreements. But clearly the existing system sees him as a threat. And the media is doing its job. The media is acting like an immune system to protect the established order by limiting the debate to this well-defined and narrow range. So neither party wants to talk about the number of illegal aliens who are in the country and the effect that this has on our economy and, um, and crime and other things in the United States. Now, I traveled a lot. I've been all over the world, especially Asia. And every country that I've ever visit visited had some had rules in place to make sure that they knew who was entering and leaving the country at all times and that if they that they were letting you into the country for specific purposes and that they knew that you were going to leave by a certain time and that they would be able to verify that you were there to do what you said you were going to do and that you were going to leave by the time you said you were going to leave and that's really a pain in the ass and a hassle and there were many times where I kind of like would curse it and mutter under my breath about it but I never complained about it I never sat around and worried about it or worked too hard to try and change it in the countries that I was visiting and staying in. 
because I was a guest in their country. You know, when I was in China, I was a guest of the people of China. And so I wanted to make sure that I followed the rules and was a good guest, that I was polite to my host and followed the rules that the host sets, because that's how things like this are supposed to work, right? But it's not just that. It's also that the, the reason why those countries have those rules in place, it's not because, you know, Japanese people are racist and they hate white people and that's why they don't want white people just randomly entering Japan. It's because Japan is trying to be Japan. And if too many people go to Japan, it won't be Japan anymore. <laughs> they are trying to protect their culture and their way of life from a giant influx of people who come from completely different cultures, completely different parts of the world. And part of that is people from places like Indonesia and the Philippines are willing to work for really low wages. And the native Japanese population is accustomed to living a higher standard of living than that, and they don't want... Uh, they don't want wages artificially suppressed by an influx of cheap migrant labor. So here's another interesting question. Why does the establishment of the United States want to have a huge influx of cheap migrant labor? So here's a fun question to ask ourselves. Why does the establishment in the United States want a massive cheap influx of migrant labor? Well, who is the establishment? They are the heads of major corporations, the senior leadership of major corporations, and they're enablers and lickspittles in the political class. And what do those people want? To not have to pay their employees too much. So a huge numbers of people who are desperate, who are willing to work for very little money because they come from horrible, painful, miserable circumstances they can become essentially slave laborers to big corporations, just like they are oftentimes in, the, in their countries of origin. Look at a place like, in my documentary Info Ghetto, I talk about uh, Indonesia and Guatemala and how the political arm of the establishment creates strife in these countries. They use the CIA and the intelligent agencies to overthrow the democratically elected local governments so that these local governments can't pass labor laws and prevent these giant corporations from coming in and building essentially sweatshops and slave labor shops. So by destroying the governments of these nations, the corporations create slave labor markets. And by allowing desperate migrant workers to enter the United States and become citizens or have their children become citizens, uh, they're creating slave labor conditions here in the United States as well. Because it is very likely, well, for one thing, something like 70% of immigrants from Mexico and South America to the United States end up on welfare or some form of public assistance. And it's extraordinarily likely that these children are going to get caught up in the worst school districts in the United States, the most violent, the least educational, most miserable school districts that you can possibly imagine. And so the likelihood that they are going to be able to assimilate into our culture and get to a point where they can be something other than dishwashers and assembly line workers and, you know, before they don't want them to be skilled labor. They don't want them to be doctors and lawyers and programmers and things like that. They want an underclass. They're trying to build 
a bigger permanent underclass than the one that they already have, because there's utility in that. Do you really think that the politicians who call everybody who is against amnesty for legal immigrants racist, do you really think that they're doing that out of the kindness of their hearts? Because as politicians, they're just so overtaken by empathy and concern for the miserable conditions that these people live in. Well, I don't think so. I tend to read more deeply into what I see. And I know that these people are driven by corporate interests and the corporations want the cheap labor. And note that the corporations want a welfare state too, because the more, the more healthcare that they can put off on the government, the more subsidies that they can provide from the government for their employees, that's, this is the corporations using tax dollars to subsidize the fact that they pay their employees as little as humanly possible. They can appear compassionate by lobbying for, well, amnesty is one thing, but like free healthcare. Free healthcare, man. We're going to have free healthcare. Don't you want free healthcare? Look at this asshole. He doesn't want people to have free healthcare. Well, that's the corporation trying to put its labor expenses off on the government. Now, does that mean that Donald Trump's motivations are clean and pure? Well, no, of course not. I'm sure he has selfish reasons for what he's doing. Maybe it's just because he wants attention or, as I mentioned, it's very possible that he just represents another wing of the establishment that doesn't have control over the media. And there may be selfish reasons that I don't know or understand yet. They may be able to benefit financially. You know, it could be the companies that the government will hire or, and buy things from in order to enable the deportation of illegal immigrants. Those companies could very well be lobbying the Trump administration in various ways. You always have to be on the lookout for stuff like that. And I know it sounds like, oh, it's a conspiracy theory. But for one thing, there's, there's no theory about it. If you read the books written by real journalists, the one who takes years to figure out what's really happening, um, these kinds of things happen all the time and it's what actually drives politics. Democracy is sort of staged. And I'm not the only person who makes that assertion. Uh, if you're on the left and you're just infuriated by everything that I'm saying right now, I highly recommend the work of Noam Chomsky. I think he's one of the best intellectuals on the left, and he has a book called Engineering Consent. And it reads like a much longer version of my documentary. It, it is uh, uh, him and another MIT professor sat down and studied the media for years using their analytic tools. And they basically came to the same conclusion that I did, which is pretty neat. You know, when you see something come from two completely different directions like that, the way that I think and the way that, that Nodachowski thinks are pretty different. And so the fact that we, from completely different perspectives, came to the same conclusion, I think, says a lot. So the establishment is fighting Trump for the reasons that I've described. And it looks like their attacks have been pretty successful, at least up until the moment. Trump's agenda has been pretty much completely stifled. Uh, Congress is completely corrupt and utterly worthless. The judiciary is completely corrupt and utterly worthless. And there's a constant maelstrom of histrionic whining and complaining in the press. And several of Trump's key advisors have either resigned or been fired or been forced out. What they're trying to do is destroy his reputation, frustrate his base, and put the country back on track for globalism by making Trump a one-term president. Now, Globalism is something else that you need to understand if you want to know what the hell's going on in American politics right now. 
Globalism is the idea that individual nations should give up their sovereignty to international governing bodies like the United Nations and the European Union. Globalists have discussed merging the United States with Canada and Mexico to create a similar like supranational structure like the EU. They've discussed having uh, a one world currency and a one world bank. The idea is that if countries are tightly integrated economically, then there will be incentive to not have incredibly destructive and expensive wars from time to time, as nations have been known to do. And I'll give you that on paper, that seems like a really good idea. But in practice, the supranational organizations tend to be run by the same establishment corporatocracy as the individual nations were and are. So instead of world peace, what we get instead is perpetual war against nations that try to reject the international finance regime of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. And that's actually what unites globalists in the Democrat and Republican parties, like the Bush family and the Clinton family and the Obamas. They have superficially different agendas. But at the end of the day, they're united on endless wars with nations that reject the international finance regime and the growth of the surveillance state in the U.S. and abroad. Now, Trump's populist movement is nationalist. Nationalism is a reactionary movement against globalism. Nationalism is the idea that individual nations should be sovereign, that they shouldn't interfere with each other's internal affairs, and that their government should use tariffs and other state measures to protect the local economy from unfair competition from other countries and protect the workforce from low wages that migrant workers are willing to work for. Now, nationalism is sometimes associated with imperialism and mercantilism, but that isn't necessarily true. You can have individual nations cooperating with one another peacefully while maintaining their own individual identities. But Southeast Asian countries like China and Japan are kind of nationalists. You know, I already used that as an example. Uh, they are strict on immigration. They do ag aggressively protect their local economies with tariffs. And at times, the United States itself has been pretty nationalist, actually. In fact, before the income tax, which is a modern contrivance, the federal government funded itself almost entirely through leveling tariffs. So on paper, I think that there'd be advantages to some elements of globalism and advantages to some elements of nationalism, and that they both have a lot of baggage that comes from state power. Um, in practice, though, globalism has really sucked and been horribly destructive. Here in the United States, we pretty much decimated our working class and middle class Lots and lots of factories have been moved overseas, in many cases moving to places that have slave labor. Globalism has been destructive both in the third world and the third, uh, third world. But it is extremely profitable for the megacorporations and the politicians get to live lavish lifestyles and have fuss made over them. So that's a high-level overview of, of things generally. If you understand that the Republican versus Democrat duopoly is an illusion, essentially, and that the real struggle in American politics is globalism trying to take over and weak, ineffectual resistance from scattered nationalist elements until Donald Trump came along and united the nationalist elements and managed to sort of take over the Republican Party and try to turn it in a nationalist direction. But there are still large globalist elements within the Republican Party. The Republican Party leadership is globalist, corporate-ocratic, capitalist, thieving, despicable swine. I'm talking about people like Paul Ryan, Rinsed Penis, I mean Reince Priebus, 
those kind of people. Uh, the Republican leadership is globalist in nature, and the Democratic Party leadership is globalist in nature. And so is the media. So that's a high-level overview of things generally. Now, in order to understand Charlottesville specifically, there's two more factions that I need to introduce you to. Now, unlike the globalists and the nationalists, these are not established political movements that have elements in power. There are some nationalist politicians who have some amount of power, there are some there are lots of globalist politicians that have a lot of power. Globalism has essentially globalism was easily winning the fight uh, pre Donald Trump. There was very little effective resistance to the globalist movement before that. Um, but there are two newish movements that are just starting to get off the ground, and that is the alt right and Antifa. Now you've probably heard of them during the media hysterics over Charlottesville. Uh, but the media has done a piss-poor job of explaining who they are and what they represent. So let me explain that and how the media is using these groups. The media is using them like a tool. Now, you've probably heard the phrase white nationalist, uh, and you've heard that associated with the alt-right. Well, this is a fringe political movement. It started in internet message boards like 4chan. They were born out of the over-the-top, no-holds-barred political debates that happen in the dark nether regions of the internet. Their beliefs are offensive. They're extremely offensive and mean and cruel. Uh, but the alt-right are very clever about how they present their message. They use a mix of exaggerations and generalizations and kind of in-your-face humor to make Nazism and anti-Semitism seem strangely, like, frighteningly almost plausible, especially when you consider that the audience here is going to be disaffected young people who haven't quite found their place in the horrible economy and everything. You know, <clears throat> people make fun of basement dwellers and, you know, basement dwelling neckbearded fatsos, but there's something like that. People like that, they're actually really sad. Usually people like this have a hard time holding down a job. They don't have a lot of close friends. They feel alienated and isolated. And oftentimes it's because of things that are outside of their control. They might have bad genetics or they might have bad parents or they might have come out of bad circumstances. Uh, sometimes people are racist uh, because they had bad individual experiences, you know, and they just extrapolate that out to everybody. Like maybe a black person wasn't nice to them one time. So what the alt-right has that works for them is satire and a sense of humor that's sort of like South Park except pushed to an even greater extreme and at the core racist and based on Nazi political ideology. Now, this is something that I know some people find really bizarre and uh, like they don't understand how this is even possible. Well, what they do is they use a combination of careful selection from science and some pseudoscience and... Uh, a little bit of history that has been kind of hidden about things like atrocities that the Allies committed during World War II that normally just gets swept under the rug. Uh, and they put all this together in some pretty intelligent ways. It's, if you say, if you like like a, a Mel Brooks movie or the South Park movie or the comedy of like Richard Pryor, imagine that mixed with this kind of almost like a science fiction fantasy perspective on the world where they believe that they have rediscovered the work of these brilliant philosophers that worked for the Nazi regime and that modern times have proven that these theories were correct and now they just make jokes about it. That's basically where they're coming from. 
So I've listened to some alt-right podcasts and spent some time reading their websites and forums, and I find it pretty troubling because they're smart enough to know how to play the media game. They would probably agree wholeheartedly with my description of the, uh, the media, and they're trying to play it for what it's worth to lay the groundwork so that they can build a long-term political movement and have an impact on politics in the future. They want to run candidates in 2028 and future elections. And I don't see anyone else who's trying to start a new political movement and thinking into the future and trying to build something real like that. Most people are just reacting. You know, the press operates on about 15 minutes worth of history and it's wrong and they can only see about 15 minutes in the future because they want you to be that. They want you to be this rootless, historyless um, id just floating in a sea of the endless now without being able to really think about what came before you or plan what's going to come after you. That is what the power elite does, you know. So the worst way to fight the alt-right, which is what I want to do, I want to see them fail and lose, uh, is by throwing hysterical fits whenever they have a public rally. Because that gives them free press coverage and it drives people to their websites and podcasts and they know it. That's what I meant when I said they know how to play the media game. They look forward to Antifa showing up at their events and they look forward to when they get kicked off of platforms like YouTube or when their domain names are taken away. Because, for one thing, to them it looks like vindication. See, we're right about everything. The, the system can't handle our ideas because they know that we're right. And whenever the press talks about them, this is free publicity. This drives people to their platforms. So if you want to fight the alt-right sort of counterintuitively, the best way to do so would be to protect their freedom of speech and let them have their little rallies. Without all the spectacle, they look pretty pathetic, don't they? I mean, the, the concept works well on the internet in some ways, but then it translates poorly to the real world. So if it was just a few dozen dorky white dudes standing around with tiki torches and no media frenzy, we all would have had a good chuckle about it and nobody would have got hurt. <laughs> so that's the alt-right. The other side is Antifa. Now, it's actually hard to find podcasts and blogs from an Antifa perspective. They don't have the kind of sophisticated network of political theorists and commentators that the alt-right has. What they do have, though, are street-level organizations in major cities. And I've seen some forums and Reddit channels that were run by people who claim to be affiliated with Antifa, but it's not the same kind of thing. What they do have, though, is George Soros money. George Soros is a globalist financier. I could spend an entire podcast talking about him, and I probably will. But this is what he does. George Soros finds, uh, funds radical political groups and insurrection, insurrections and manipulates currencies and entire regional economies um, completely amorally. That is how he earns his billions of dollars. And uh, he, he discusses that pretty openly in some interviews that are a little bit hard to find. They've been trying to find them. But if you, if you search YouTube for George Soros, you can find interviews with him where he talks about things like that openly. So Antifa are left anarchists. What they want is a society that's organized like communism, where resources are equally shared among everyone, but without state power to enforce it. So equality, equity, would be forced through social norms. They are extremist leftists, and they're not overtly racist or anything like that, but they are willing to use violence. They would say that the alt-right is so obviously wrong and their ideology is so obviously destructive that it's okay to use violence against them to prevent them from gaining power. 
And you've no doubt heard about the horrible, tragic death of the young woman in Charlottesville. But what's less discussed about this, these incidents is the violence that Antifa um, engaged in that led up to that. Antifa protesters have in the past attacked not just alt-right Nazis, but also just plain Trump supporters with bicycle locks. Um, apparently, a Antifa protester splashed acid in the face of an alt-right YouTuber uh, named Baked Alaska. I've seen that discussed, and I know that there's video of it. I haven't had a chance to look at it closely yet. But people are running around talking about it. I'll probably make a video if it's true. But my point is here that what we're seeing isn't what the media presented. What we have here is an escalating cycle of violence between probably the two most unlikable groups of people that I can possibly imagine. And the money is coming from external globalist finance. That's why Antifa is able to do its thing. And the hysterics and the fireworks are coming from the mainstream media, which we know represents the interest of the globalist corporate corporatocracy. So this is real power. This is how the most powerful, backstabbing, lying politicians in the world actually operate, by playing on people's perceptions and their fears and organizing them into desperate groups and then playing them off against each other so that you don't notice that they have their hands in the cookie jar. So the alt-right and Antifa are tiny political movements. They don't represent broad groundswells in the United States, regardless of what they will tell you. Uh, they deserve each other, and if we leave them alone, their rallies will be what they are. Now, most people who want to protect historical monuments, uh, like statues of Civil War figures and things like that, are not alt-right Nazis. Most people who want to take the statues down are not Antifa anarcho-communists who want to hit people with bike locks. <laughs> These are things that we could just have adult conversations about if the media treated the stories for what they are, which is some really unlikable outliers who are engaging in activities. They're, they're basically having group therapy sessions and working out their own personal problems. But during the election, Hillary Clinton tried to make a pretty interesting political move. She tried to associate all Trump supporters with the alt-right. It was sort of like an easy, cheap way to try and make her political opponents look bad. You know, look at these people. Look how, look at the absolute worst that the right has to offer. My political opponents and the people who want to vote for him, they're all this bad. And then they got it more into the Russian hacking narrative. I think they felt like they could make more hay with that, but it's mostly fallen apart. Uh, so now they're looking for new stuff, and apparently they've decided to play this angle up as far as they can. You know, the, the agenda is to fight the infestation, prevent the nationalist agenda of the elected president, and continue the globalist establishment megacorporation international finance profit bonanza. But meanwhile, the president himself has been a bit of a disappointment, huh? He bombed Syria... He's been stymied by Congress, and he seems to be manipulated by the globalists who surround him now. Uh, then again, he did stop funding CIA rebel groups in Syria, and he's tried to implement some elements of his agenda, though I do have grave disagreements with some of the decisions that he's made and some movements that the administration has taken. Um, but for now, the jury's out on Trump. It'll be years before we really know what's going on. But even in the worst case scenario, while the globalists are fighting Trump, the globalist agenda is halted or at least slowed. And so that's why I, I'm a Trump supporter in a sense. I, I, I supported him pretty enthusiastically coming into the election. 
Then when he bombed Syria, I I held back from supporting him. And the way I feel about it now is that he's just kind of... It's, it's sort of what I expected. What I expected was that he would attempt to implement his agenda and he would be... That the, the system would try and fight him and throw him out. Um, and that really probably not a whole lot would happen and that the big changes were going to get punted sort of till after the midterms, if possible. What they'll try and do is punt things to the midterms and then if the perception will be based on whether or not the Republican Party manages to pick up seats and hold on to Congress. And if they do, then it'll be seen as like a win for Trump, which it's actually a lot more complicated than that, isn't it? It depends on which Republicans are elected. Like a Paul Ryan loss would be huge for Donald Trump. Now, I, I, Paul Ryan's probably not going anywhere. He's in a really safe district. But uh, a Paul Ryan loss would benefit Trump in spite of the fact that it would be a really powerful position that belongs to the part, Republican Party that would be lost in a pretty humiliating fashion. But Paul Ryan is Donald Trump's enemy in spite of the fact that they're in the same party. And it's because of this globalist versus nationalist dynamic. And that's pretty much how I see things. That is what I think is happening in politics in the United States at the moment. And to be honest with you, I kind of wish that this was a fictional universe that I was studying from, you know, from some parallel universe <laughs> or that I was reading a novel about this universe that I would, I would think of it as a comedy. If I lived in a sane universe and I was reading a book about this universe, I would say that it was a, a pretty far-fetched comedy. But uh, unfortunately, it's real. As far as I can tell, this is Earth Prime. But uh, uh, here on my podcast, I will be trying to help you see through the media. I will try to help. I will, try, I will provide my perspective, and I will provide my thoughts on techniques, and I will try to get a conversation going with people in the comments about what other people are seeing and techniques that other people are using to try and get more information. And I will shortly, I have been working on this for a while, but it's not ready yet. I have a giant list that I'm going to put up on my website of the media outlets that I read because there's a ton. I, I, I check dozens of pages almost every day because I want to get a broad and well-rounded view of what lots of different people are saying because I don't want to have my perspective of the world colored by any one person or any one point of view. And so I personally am... Well, I'm actually, <laughs> my, my own philosophy is, is complicated and kind of unique. I have my own kind of fringe political ideology, actually, and I'll talk about that in other times and other places. But my point is, I don't want to say that I'm unbiased. I will always admit that I'm biased. I think that it is pretentious and impossible to, you, to even claim to be unbiased is ridiculous because everybody has their own life experiences and everybody has their own perspective. And so... The way that I think that news and philosophy should be analyzed in the public square is that people should be open and honest about what their biases are, and we should all have a big open discussion where everybody has the right to say pretty much anything, and that at the end of that, what we have is a fair debate and an election, and the leaders are chosen that way. It's the best that we've got right now. And I have some ideas for how we can improve politics in the future. I'll be talking about that. But for now, we're stuck with this, and I'm going to try my best to, to try and make it work as well as it can. And uh, for now, that means replacing the establishment media, the corporatist, globalist media, 
with uh, free and independent media that, uh, that that spread over the internet. We all have access to mass. We all have access to mass communication now, and this is what I decided to do with it. And I hope that I hope that you listening, if you have some kind of talent or interest in this kind of thing, I hope that maybe you're thinking about it too, because the more of us that are out here taking part in this discussion and looking for information and trying to figure out what's going on, the more likely it is that we're going to have a good picture, a robust picture with lots of different opinions and points of view. So if you have any suggestions, if there's an alternate media outlet that you've never heard me mention or whatever, feel free to leave a comment and let me know on YouTube or on Facebook or Gab or whatever. And if you know somebody who's struggling to understand what's happening in the news, who has an open mind, who might be interested in this kind of thing, or if you know somebody who is just getting into this kind of stuff, who is looking for a primer to help them understand what's going on, I hope that you would be interested in maybe sharing this podcast with them. I'd really appreciate that. That would help me grow my YouTube channel and my podcast. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. If you enjoy it, then please help me spread it. I would really appreciate that. I get so excited every time I get a new subscriber or something. So that's pretty much it for the serious stuff. And I think it's time to, uh, to have a silly topic. I'm not going to bother to complain about all of the bad things that have been happening to me behind the scenes that forced me to lower my production values and go down to just making one video a week when I can. Nobody wants to hear that, and I don't want to talk about it. That's boring. But there has been one really cool thing that I've been waiting for kind of like the right moment to reveal. I'll probably make some videos about it later, but for people who listen to the podcast who made it this far in and you want to hear my silly topics, I really appreciate you guys. I really do. Thank you so much for sticking around and for, for wanting to pay attention to what I have to say. I really appreciate it. So I'll go ahead and fill you in a little bit early. You, you have firsthand knowledge of everybody else, but many of you may be aware, if you've been following me for a while, that I used to be the bass player of a pretty popular band around Pittsburgh, Echoes Never Lie. And unfortunately, that didn't really work out. Uh, we had some discussions about how it was working with me on bass, and ultimately, they decided to let me go, and I, I left the band. It was almost a mutual decision. But then I tried out for singer. We happened to need a new singer, and I tried out, and they immediately rehired me as the singer. <laughs> so I'm now the singer of Echoes Never Lie, which is uh, a lot of fun. I'm so happy and so excited and humbled that that is the case. It's a lot of really hard work. I had to write lyrics for songs, for three or four songs, very quickly. And I uh, also was a little bit rusty. I was doing background vocals in the band before. Uh, but that was pretty much it. I haven't really been singing very much, so I also had to go through and start with my warm-up exercises and everything else and just get back into the the flow of singing all the time, which if you've never sang like in a band or in church or something like that, it's kind of a massive pain in the ass. It's a lot of fun. I love to do it, but your instrument is part of your body. So here's something about singing that you don't have to worry about with other instruments. I also, I play guitar and keyboard and bass and a few other things. And with instruments, even if you're kind of tired and worn out, you can play. I mean, you won't sound as good as usual, but your instrument is what it is. And even though you're not at the peak of your abilities, you can rely on the instrument and you can get through it. And so you can have shows, you can, you can practice songs and learn them, even if you're not in the best mood, even if you're tired, even if maybe you are a little bit hungover or whatever. With singing, it doesn't work like that because your instrument's part of your body. <laughs> so if you feel under the weather, if you're a little bit sick or if you didn't get enough sleep, 
or if you haven't been eating right and you just feel kind of under the weather because your body doesn't have the nutrients that it needs from lots of nice fresh organic vegetables, then you will sound horrible even if you concentrate and try as hard as you can because your body's not right. And so you have to take care of yourself really well or you'll sound horrible. And, <laughs> and so part of it for me, I have been trying to get back into the routine of, how, of eating a healthy diet, <laughs> especially the day of a show. Like I, I struggle with, uh, I, I have a sweet tooth and I love fried food. So I struggle with that every now and then. And as a singer, it's real bad because if you eat dairy products, Dairy products can cause inflammation and, and their mucus forming, and that affects your voice. The other day, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had pizza before band practice, and I could barely sing. It sounded horrible, especially Echoes. If, you're, if you've never heard Echoes, we are sort of like a heavy metal band. Well, we are heavy metal, but we're so heavy, we are, we're almost full-on just like death metal or grindcore. It's very heavy, but then I do a mixture of clean singing and screaming and like a hardcore kind of yell. And the guitar player is Jason. Uh, he's a friend of mine. Uh, we've been collaborating on music for a long time, and he is a really talented player. And for this band, what he's chosen to do, we're using seven strings, and he's gone with more of a stripped down kind of groovy approach. So instead of pummeling riff salads where there's so much going on with the guitar parts, it's hard to follow for people who aren't musicians. Like a band like um, Cattle Decapitation is a band that I really like. If you know Cattle I'm not a vegetarian. At least not, I don't think that it's morally wrong to eat animals or anything. Cattle Decapitation is a vegetarian death metal band. I guess vegetarian death metal is something I have to explain. Most people aren't aware of it. But yeah, there's death metal bands that they write songs about vegetarianism and veganism and stuff. And Cattle Decapitation is one band such as that, and they're amazing. I love their music. Their, uh, their albums, The Anthropocene Extinction, and uh, I forget the name of the record, but the one that has Regret in the Grave on it. Holy crap, it's a great song. I think that probably I'm going to start doing heavy metal album reviews at some point pretty soon. Heavy metal is my favorite genre of music, and it, because it's so diverse... There are so many different bands that sound so different from one another, but at the core, it's still metal. And you know that just from listening to it. You can feel it. Metal is almost like a feeling. Heavy music is a feeling. It's a feeling that I really love, and I really love being the singer of a heavy metal band. It is just one of my favorite things in the world to do. When the crowd is really into it, and you hit a moment in a song where it's just a crescendo of, of angry aggressive, huge music. It feels like I'm part of the music. It's, it's a hard thing. Someday I'll probably do a whole silly podcast about music. I would love to talk about what it feels like to be part of a band and what it feels like to be in the mosh pit of the show. And I would just love to have people comment about their experiences, especially if they're non-musicians, if they're not huge music fans. I want to compare notes with people. I, I'm always fascinated, not just by music itself, but by, by the way it affects people. What is music, man? It's, it's almost like magic, isn't it? It's so interesting how just organizing sound can make you feel an emotion or make you feel better about something shitty that happened to you a long time ago or make you feel optimistic about the future or, or make you help you let go of somebody that you used to love or, 
or help you create the the right mood to create romance with somebody who's in your life now. You know, I love music. Music is just the greatest thing ever, and I am genuinely humbled and honored to be singing for Echoes. And I want to do some things like shoot an episode of my comedy series Penance Stumping, and have the band as a uh, as guests or maybe do video logs. I did a video log on one of our little mini tours. I'll probably do stuff like that again. And of course, uh, I've done a couple song parodies already. I did uh, Anarcho-Capitalist Imagine, <laughs> where I took the song Imagine by John Lennon, and I, read, I redid the lyrics to, to be about anarcho-capitalism instead of anarcho-communism. <laughs> I wish I could have played that for John Lennon. I'd be really curious to hear John Lennon's opinion of that song. But I digress. I have some more song parodies planned for the future. Basically, I want to incorporate music in the show more. I think that probably I want to do some like acoustic live performances. Another thing that I have done uh, and would like to do again in the future is solo acoustic performances where I'll book a show. It's just me and I'll, I'll have acoustic guitars and loopers and I'll loop rhythm parts and then play leads over them and try and try and give you, even though it's a one man show, try and give you something a little bit more. I love the interaction between two guitars. And when I used to do an acoustic duo, it was actually just me and Jason who now plays for echoes. But we had an acoustic duo where uh, I sang and did rhythm, mostly rhythm. And he mostly did leads, but you know, we would trade back and forth and stuff. I love that. The interweaving of two guitars. It's my favorite thing. So I think what I'd like to do is record myself performing and then be the second guitar player too and <laughs> and then mix the two together. That might be pretty neat. I should try something like that. I don't know. I'm kind of just babbling to be honest with you. Uh don't turn don't turn it off, but I'm experimenting with I don't have any notes. I had notes for the first half of the podcast and now I'm just kind of winging it. But I feel like I have exhausted that topic of conversation. So I'm trying to think if there's anything else silly that we can talk about. Game of Thrones is wrapping up, and back when I used to be really into the books, I was super into the first four books in that series back when I was overseas. I read the first four books while I was in Taiwan, actually. And uh, man, were they good. Part of it, maybe part of it was just that I was starved for material to read in English. I would go to bookstores and you would see, obviously, in Japan, most books are in Japanese. In China, most books are in Chinese. In Taiwan, most books are Chinese. So um, there'd be one tiny little shelf of English books way in the back. And you just get stuck with whatever you happen to luck out to get. It's difficult to be a reader living in a foreign country where you don't speak the language. But... uh, I ended up reading lots of stuff that ordinarily I'd never touch. And it's fun to do that sometimes because every once in a while you'll get a surprise. And I guess, well, I'll tell you about this. Sure. Why not? One of the books that I found myself accidentally reading overseas was Watership Down. Did anybody ever read that? Leave a comment if you read Watership Down. Holy shit. This is such a great book. It's a children's book about bunny rabbits who have to leave their rabbit hole to, to establish a new rabbit colony because one of the rabbits has a shamanic vision that their, their home is going to be destroyed by construction equipment, by human construction equipment. And so some of the rabbits strike out on their own to, to form a new rabbit civilization. And it is one of the most amazing books. It is 
on a surface level, it's entertaining for children. It's a well-written children's story. But then on a deeper level, it has profound meditations about the human condition. And I'll, I'll tell you one part, because I don't think it's too spoilery. It's a little bit. I'm going to give away a tiny, tiny bit about the ending. But I'm going to do that in the hopes that it'll convince people to read the book. And it's actually more interesting if you are aware of this reading the book, if you think about this during the story. So I don't think this is the kind of spoiler that ruins things, but if you don't want to have Watership Down spoiled for you, um, skip ahead of like 30 seconds or so. The story... During the story, the rabbits have kind of a hero that they have folk tales about. Think of sort of like a rabbit version of a rabbit version of um, Paul Bunyan, you know, somebody like that, somebody who's a folk hero. And whenever the rabbits are in trouble or in danger or something, they think about the stories that were told about, about their folk hero. And they would use that as inspiration. Well, we know that the rabbit folk hero did X, Y, and Z. And maybe we, that could give us a cool idea about what we're trying to accomplish on our journey today. And then by the end of the story, these rabbits have accomplished great things and done cool stuff. And they start later towards the end of the story. I'm not going to tell you what happens at the end, but the, the rabbits who survived the journey are, are together with other rabbits in the new civilization that they founded. And they are discussing their adventures. And what you slowly begin to realize is that the stories have morphed. The stories aren't about the real rabbits who lived through the adventure anymore. The stories are about the folk hero. The other things that had happened to the rabbits were incorporated into the body of literature about their folk hero. And so the folk hero had become sort of like a, a way of creating an omnibus of the most important information that the rabbit tribe had accumulated over maybe hundreds or thousands of years of history. And that is one of the most brilliant things that I've ever seen written about mythology ever. And I've read things like Jung, uh, Finch's mythology. I love mythology. I've studied mythology ever since I was a teenager. And that, it was like, I had come to that kind of understanding, but I didn't know how to say it. it. It was like sort of a proto idea that it was in my head. And when I read that in the book, it was so brilliant. And to make the medium of expression a children's adventure story is really a stroke of genius. I can't remember the name of the author off the top of my head, and I apologize for that. But man, what a great idea. I, I, I feel like Jordan Peterson should read Watership Down. Danny, if you listen to Jordan Peterson, I'm a big fan. Uh, me and a friend of mine, we listen to Jordan Peterson and send each other clips and talk about it and stuff. But I bet Jordan Peterson would love that book, and I bet he'd have some really interesting things to say about it. So maybe tweet Watership Down at Jordan Peterson. <laughs> so anyway, I was talking about trying to read books in a foreign country. Uh, one more anecdote about that. Um, Another book that I was stuck reading was The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. I was in Asia while that whole phenomenon was happening. And I thought that the book itself... Well, first of all, it's one of the worst written books that I've ever seen. It, it, the, Dan Brown writes like a college creative writing student. Not the content of the stories. His stories are awesome. I actually really like the storylines, but I'm talking about the writing style, his prose. 
is pretty bad. And Dan Brown wrote, in my opinion, the worst sentence that I've ever seen in a professionally published book. And that is this. This is the worst sentence I've ever read. The killer's eyes shone ghostily in the night. That's disgusting. Uh, ghostily is a hideous adverb. Adverbs are the, the bane of the existence of all writers. They should be banished. And then shown, oh, oh God. I hate words that have, I hate words that have uh, weird past tenses. Like it shouldn't be shown, it should be shined. <laughs> I'm, I'm OCD about the way language works. Sorry about that. But, all right, sorry, I'm getting off on tangents here. I'm getting on tangents away from my tangent. But ba back to my original tangent, which was about Game of Thrones. So I encountered the, the Song of Ice and Fire series of novels, of which the first book is Game of Thrones at that time. And I really devoured them. I thought they were so, so, so good. But then about the time where he released a book that only had half the characters in it because he had spent like six years writing it and couldn't finish it. <laughs> uh, I realized, I think, that two things were happening. One was that he sort of lost the plot. I think that he got lost in what was happening and he was just sort of making it up as he went along and that he wasn't passionate about it anymore. And I feel like some of the interviews that I've seen with him have borne that out. I've seen interviews with him where he was almost contemptuous of the people who were constantly asking him when the next book was going to come out. And uh, I, I have never and will never be down with that because I was one of those people anxiously waiting the next book. And I, I, can, I kept reading for a little while, but I, it just, it lost me. And it seemed like George Martin, I don't want to call him a one-trick pony. He's a really talented writer. But the problem with him is that he uses the technique of throwing an unexpected tragedy at you too often. It was a brilliant technique in the first several books to subvert the cliches of the fantasy genre the way that George Martin does. It was brilliant. It was really brilliant. But at some point, it seemed like the violence and the backstabbing took over from the story and the characters and the book sort of became about that. And I lost interest in it. And when the show came out, I hate television. And my suspicion was that the show wasn't going to have the budget to actually make the epic sweeping vision of the books come to life. And I only watched the first two episodes, but I felt like my fears were pretty much confirmed that's that is what it's like that's what the show's like or it was back then anyway i didn't think it was worth watching but now i've been wondering okay i would be curious to see how the story was supposed to end so maybe i should watch the last season but i don't think that i care enough every time i have free time i want to read about the news and politics or or study music or whatever so i think probably i'm not even going to bother to watch the last season of game of thrones i don't care anymore i'll read i'll read the summary on wikipedia <laughs> but I, I've heard that George Martin has signed a bunch of other deals to develop TV shows with HBO. And I wonder if maybe that's the best thing for him. I, it seems to me like he's more passionate about creating television than he is about writing books. And artists absolutely need to follow their passion. And so even, you know, George Martin, he seems to me like kind of a jerk and he has some really bad 
cliche, poorly thought out political opinions. But I don't hold any of that against him. What I want to see is artists who are happy, artists who can make the kind of art that they want, who reach the audience who wants to see that art. And if, if it's art that I personally don't like or enjoy, I don't hold it against anybody. It's just that I, I pass. And so I will be passing on any HBO TV shows probably. Uh, the, only t- the only TV show holding my interest right now is House of Cards. Even that, uh, House of Cards is pretty great, actually. But even that, uh, I've been, I was really excited for the new season to come out, but now it's been out and I haven't watched it yet. Every time I get the chance to sit down and, and where I would watch it, I, I would rather read about politics or, or work on music or whatever. I guess TV just isn't my medium. Maybe I should do a podcast where I talk about Dark Souls. I love the video game Dark Souls, but I think this has gone on far enough. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I hope that you have enjoyed this. And I'm even gonna, I'm gonna separate this out into a separate video when I post on YouTube. So people on YouTube can, uh, you know, they can pick what they, if they want to hear the silly stuff or not, but I don't know. I feel divided by silly stuff, and I guess I'll throw this open to the, to the crowd, to you guys. Do you like it when I talk about my life and personal experience and things? Was this too much? Is this entertaining? There are multiple people who uh, that I know personally who listen to the podcast and watch the show who have told me that I should talk about myself more. And that was where these segments came from. But I feel like I wouldn't want to listen to this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like for me, I'm all business. Uh, I tend to be more serious. Uh, it's not that I'm not interested in people's lives. It's just, I don't listen to Stefan Molyneux because I want to hear about, you know, what he, what he does, what movies he saw. I actually think his movie reviews are the weakest part of his show. But uh, I have been, there are people who are requesting this kind of thing. So if you're into this kind of thing and you feel like I'm not doing good at it or you want to hear me talk about things or you have any kind of feedback, so let me know what you think about the, uh, the fun, silly kind of content of the show. Let me know. But I think I've said my piece and it's time for me to go. Uh, if you're listening now especially... I would, I wholeheartedly ask that you would please sign up and follow me on Gab. I really need to uh, build a following on Gab because I'm going to get thrown off YouTube here pretty soon. I think that there's no, there's no doubt about that. There's no question. So, um, make sure to follow me on Gab and Facebook and all that shit. So when I start getting thrown off of the big platforms, Gab is going to be the place to go. All right, I'm babbling now. I'm just walking around in circles, so... I think that's it. I think that's time to put this one in the can. But I'm really happy to be doing this again. I will be doing this a lot more in the near future. Uh, And so I'll talk to you again real soon. And in the meantime, as always, it is a harsh world out there, my friends. So please keep thinking. Bye-bye.